0: I just wanted to let you know that this morning's teaching is going to be a little bit different as I want to first share with you a Bible study tool for you to have in your tool belt and then we'll get into the passage for this morning. Um, Some of you do know that I was pre-med in college. I ended up not going to medical school, but I majored in chemistry and biology and I was fascinated by anatomy and physiology. And I learned that God created our bodies with an amazing, wonderful skeletal structure that serves to support our bodies. Um, it protects our brains and other internal organs, and it provides a rigid structure upon which muscles can, can uh, pull and, and make our bodies move. We can have body movements because of the, our structure. Without this structure, we would be floating along like jellyfish. You're wondering, what does this have to do with Bible study? <laughs> well, just wait. It gets more f- interesting. <laughs> if you've ever remodeled a house, or you've watched Chip and Joanna, remodel you know something called load-bearing walls, right, have to be considered. So a contractor has to go down and look at the basement and see the joists and sometimes people refer to the structure of a home and they say it has good bones, right, have you heard that? In Bible study we have to learn to sort of tear down the drywall and go down to the basement to see the structure or we read the text with x-ray eyes to see the bones. Every text has a structure, and the structure will reveal an emphasis. And I have that on page one of your handout, the the page that has the little graph at the bottom. So what is the organizational structure of a Bible passage? Well, if you go underneath the skin or behind the sheetrock, of each passage, there's an underlying arrangement of material, an outline of logic or shape that the author has used to to organize the text. You might think about it as the author's outline. And each part of the passage has a role to play in that. Sometimes it's a literary device like a sandwich that Mark used in his gospel. We've been learning about sandwiches from Pastor Jason, right? Sometimes it's a grammatical or a logical structure which is really common in Paul's letters, and some of you are learning how to break down a passage grammatically to help you see the flow of Paul's argument. Sometimes it's separation of a passage into stanzas. We see that in the Psalms, poetry. And sometimes it's a narrative with a plot, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, you have this on your handout. On this handout you can see there's five parts of a story arc. You have the setting the conflict, the climax, the resolution, and the new setting. The setting is what sets the scene for the action to take place. So this background information can include an introduction of characters, a description of the time or the location, and even some basic action that sort of sets up the body of the story. And then we have conflict. Conflict is the story's heartbeat, so to speak. Tension rises when conflict enters a story with an event or maybe an incident that triggers the rest of the events of the story. And that tension keeps building. So it's sometimes called rising action. And then we have the climax. This is the highest point of tension in the story, the point at which the conflict is dealt with or reversed in some way. And then we have the resolution, or this is sometimes called falling action. This describes the consequences of the climax. So the the conflict is resolved, loose ends are tied up, the tension level then goes down. Thus, you're kind of going down the other slope. And then we have our new setting. And this is the new situation which the characters find themselves in as a result of living through that conflict and going through the climax and the resolution. It closes the loop, so to speak, and it's not always happy. It might be the end of a story or it might set up the next chapter. So often we will find that the author's main point is at the climax or at the resolution. The climax highlights the reversal of the conflict, and then the resolution highlights the implications down the road for or the, com- or the consequences of that reversal. So when we uncover the story's plot structure, it helps us to avoid placing too much weight on other details of the story. Those details are important, but they're not the main point. And so we want to find out what the structure is so that we can know what that main point is. Another way that you might have heard this is uh, SWBTS. Somebody wanted, but then so. The somebody is the introduction to the story, the setting where we might learn background information important to the rest of the story, like a setting, and we're going to, it's the who, it's the what, it's the where, it's the when. The wanted means that that person's goal, what is their motivation, but indicates that there's an obstacle to that, then indicates that there were steps taken, and so indicates the outcome or the resolution. An example of this is the fairy tale story of Cinderella that we're all familiar with, right? Somebody, Cinderella, right, wanted to go to the ball, right? But yeah, her, her evil stepsisters wouldn't let her, and she had work to do, right? So fairy godmother comes, right, with her magic wand and makes everything better. She gives her a dress and a shoes and a carriage, right? And then, yeah, she meets the prince and they live happily ever after. And the so is the happily ever after. So that's that's one way to look at a story. You might remember when we were going through Mark, the story of Jesus calming the storm. If we were to read that, I wonder if you could put the lens on of this right here, the diagram. The setting, the conflict, the climax, the resolution, and the new setting. So let me read that for us, and in your mind, I want you to, we'll we'll stop and we'll identify it. Okay, on that day when evening had come, this is a setting, right? He said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. So we have right here the conflict, right? Rising tension, and the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, Jesus asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We get to the climax of the story. What happens? Jesus wakes up, and what does he say? Peace be still, Peace be still right? The, and, and the winds and the wave uh, obey, right? So the resolution, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What is the new setting? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Do you see how things didn't go back to the way they were, but there's a new setting there? Okay, you get the idea. So let's dive into Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So get out your, either your sheets uh, that you have the Bible passage printed on or open up your Bibles. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. <coughs> then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers, secretly brought in and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." So let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonders in this passage of Galatians this morning? We need you, and we are so thankful that you desire to reveal your truth to us and that you work through weak vessels to show your strength. So Lord, I pray that you would guard me from error May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, amen. We're going to have a time of interaction. I'm gonna give you two minutes to take that diagram that you have in front of you, turn to somebody next to you, and I want you to either use SWBTS or use your plot diagram there, setting, conflict, climax, resolution, and new setting. See if you can mark in the verses where you think the setting ends and the conflict begins. What is the climax? What is the resolution? What is the main setting? I will give you two minutes and then we're going to come back together and we're going to talk through the passage. Two minutes. Okay, let's come back together. Alright ladies, so what is the setting? The somebody. Who is the somebody or the setting? Mm-hmm. Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and what are they doing? They're going to Jerusalem, right? So what verses did you put down for the setting? Verses 1, 2, 3? Yeah, okay. Verses 1 through 3 is the setting, right? And we know that this is a continuation. So somebody asked about the C on the blanks on page 2. The first one is continuation. How do, we, how do we know that, that this is a continuation? What's, what's our clue? Then, then right. So it, it leads us to ask, well, then what, what came before, right? So let's review. What is the context? What is, in Jackie's words, what is the slice of pie for today? What's the flavor of the pie today, right? Well, we know that Paul is writing to the Galatians as their founding pastor, right? And we know that his credibility is being questioned. And he says he has the right to speak to them for a number of reasons, right? Last week, we learned that he received his gospel how? Dire- right, directly from a revelation from Jesus Christ, not from any man. And so he's a, he established his independence from the apostles in Jerusalem last week. And so now the question Paul is answering is, well, so what is your relationship to the church in Jerusalem? You know, are you a lone ranger, Paul? Or, you know, how do you line up with the apostles? So we learned that 14 years have elapsed and Paul has been preaching the gospel in the region of Syria and Cilicia without input from the other apostles. And just a little note here about these various trips, because I know it's very confusing to try to sync Acts and Galatians here. We know that Paul made at least four visits to Jerusalem. His first visit was not long after his conversion, and he had a very short visit, 15 days with Peter. We learned that in Galatians 1. And then his second visit was listed in Acts 11. Um, That was to take a gift to the poor in Jerusalem, and that was during a severe famine. And his third visit was listed in Acts 15, And that's probably the most famous. And some men had come to Antioch saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then you can't be saved. And so Paul was appointed along with Barnabas and others to go up to the Jerusalem council that's talked about, you know, we kind of have the minutes of that meeting in Acts 15. And then Paul's fourth visit to Jerusalem that we know of that's listed in Acts is in Acts 21 through 28. And that was his last visit because there he was arrested and then he was sent off to Rome uh, to face trial. So, which of the visits was Paul referring to here in Galatians 2, verse 1? Where does the Galatians fit in with the chronology of Acts? Well, there's two options. Um, Galatians 2 could correspond to Acts 15, which is the time, you know, it seems logical because they're debating about circumcision, right? Or it could correspond to Acts 11, the time that he goes up to bring the offering for the poor. And there are similarities to both. But one of the things that's most convincing to me is that the Jerusalem Council that's talked about in Acts 15 settled the question of circumcision kind of once for all with an official decree that was distributed to all the churches. That We read that in Acts 16. And so if Galatians 2 refers to Acts 15, then you'd think Paul would have said, this was settled by, by the church officially, so we don't need to talk about this anymore. And so most scholars think that, that Galatians 2 then refers to Acts 11 rather than, than Acts 15. We can't know for sure. But you know, um, Paul would have mentioned it, I think, if it had already been settled, because having Jerusalem on his side would have certainly settled the argument. I think that it is most likely that it's that it's chapter 11. So who are his companions? We mentioned that Barnabas, right? And Titus. And Titus is a, a believer who had not been previously circumcised because that was a Jewish thing. He was a Gentile, right? So what were some of the issues that Paul faced on this trip? Well circumcision is a big one, right? And this would have resonated with the Galatians as they, too, were facing pressure from false teachers to comply with this Jewish rite. But Paul says explicitly why he went. What did he want? Why did he go? He says, I went up because of a revelation, right? He went to the church in Jerusalem to set before them or to let them know the gospel that he had been preaching. So he submits his message, his good news, to the pillars of the Mother Church. He was willing to have his message scrutinized by these leaders. And, I, and uh, an example of this might be, is Emily in here today? She's not here. I was gonna tell, oh, she is here! <laughs> Emily could stand up. This would be similar to, to Tom and Emily who are going out as church planters with our 25 by 25 initiative. And so, so Tom, you, don't, you, can, you can sit down now, but so Tom is a resident this year you know, under the elders and the pastors here at the North Campus. And so this might be similar to them coming back to Pastor Stephen 14 years from now in the year 2033 and giving an update on how the gospel was advancing over in wherever it's going to be. It hasn't been determined finally, right? And, and they, and they were re- report back and say, you know, how is the church doing? Are they standing firm in their theological convictions? Are they still adhering to the Bethlehem, you know, elder affirmation of faith? And so Paul clearly communicated the gospel that he was preaching. And what had he been preaching? Do you remember back in chapter one, verses one through five, when we talked about the, go- the good news of the gospel? Paul said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself, right, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So Paul had some goals here. There were some things at stake that you looked at at your lesson. He wanted to have confirmation from these pillars that he was preaching the truth, that his message was not in vain. He, Paul, knew he was preaching the truth. He was confident, but practically speaking, his ministry would be in trouble if he was opposed by the church in Jerusalem. He knew that his gospel was a direct revelation from God, but he's not a lone ranger. If the other apostles didn't endorse Paul's authority and renounce the false teachers, it would be difficult or impossible for Paul going forward in his ministry in Gentile churches. So he brings Titus along. And we can assume that the churches in Galatia knew Titus because Paul mentions him you know, by name. And Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And so this was more confirmation that the true gospel did not contain a requirement for circumcision. But there's a conflict. Conflict is rising here. And we see this in which verses? Four. Verses 4 and five, right? Verses four and five is the the tension rising part of your diagram. And why would the Galatians care about this story of Paul's conflict in Jerusalem? Well, what did we learn back in verses six through 10 of chapter one? We learned that the Galatians were also facing a conflict, right? They had troublemakers that had come into the church. They were distorting the gospel. They were teaching a false gospel. Teaching that Jesus alone for salvation wasn't sufficient, that we had to add some works. And so they listen or read this letter with great interest to what Paul is saying about the conflict that he had in Jerusalem. And then last week when Julia taught uh, in verses 11 through 24 of chapter 1, we learned that the gospel that, or Jackie, I'm sorry, it was what Jackie taught last week. We learned that the gospel that Paul was preaching was not man's gospel, and he said that he was exhibit A, right? That he, he was a, an effect of the gospel. Paul's life demonstrated that because of God's grace, Paul was transformed, that Paul was called, that God revealed Jesus to him. Paul's testimony was of transformation. And so Paul preached the gospel, he said in verse 11, and he preached Jesus in verse 16, and he brought glory to God for 14 years. So Paul was very confident in his calling He had no need really for validation. But if that mother church would disapprove his message, it would undo his ministry to the Gentiles. And so Paul tells us of this other conflict in verses four to five. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The Galatians were relating to this. These guys were secretly brought in, slipped in to spy out the freedom This reminds me of Jude, uh, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Their aim was to bring the church into slavery. So we see this clear conflict between freedom and slavery, and Paul is going to develop this theme more in the chapters to come. Paul's response to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. So he stood firm. He confronted head on. So the conflict, what is the conflict? You, the C word you can fill in is confrontation. Confrontation. <coughs> Paul is relentless in his determination to protect true gospel liberty. He doesn't budge. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 1, verse 9? If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received. Let him be accursed." Now, I thought of a couple applications here. And one is the question, what is our responsibility as believers when we listen to teachers, preachers, whether in church or in other media, or we read blogs, or we watch YouTube, or Hulu, or Netflix, or whatever you use for entertainment, because it all has a worldview. Even if it's a movie, you know, it, it comes with a worldview that's preaching to you while you're watching. And so we dare not believe that it's all neutral or innocuous, okay? It's coming in and, and it, it's, it's hitting our brains. We need to be discerning and we need to hold fast to the truth of the gospel and we need to ask whether the teaching goes above the line of Scripture or below the line of Scripture. Getting the gospel right is so important. It's eternally important. And yet, Tom Schreiner, one of the commentators that we've been reading, wrote this. He said, we must be exceedingly careful to make sure that we understand someone's theology before branding anyone as a false brother or sister. To say that works are necessary evidence, evidence of salvation, is not the same as saying that works are the ultimate basis of our salvation. So ladies, we need to heed this warning. Are we pointing our fingers at others, insisting that they line up perfectly with our Bethlehem elder affirmation of faith the moment they believe? We've been learning a lot about theological differences in what our leaders consider to be tier one, tier two, and tier three issues. Pastor Jason called it theological triage. He said, just like an emergency room nurse has to do triage in deciding which injuries are more life-threatening and need to be treated first, like a gunshot wound prior to a sprained ankle, some theological doctrines are more urgent and eternal life threatening than others. First tier doctrines are essential to be orthodox, like the second coming of Christ. Second tier doctrines are essential to church life and order, like baptism. Third tier doctrines are important, but not essential for salvation or church order, like the timing and sequence of the second coming of Christ. Pastor Jason went on. He said, we have to be aware of what we say about things, about these things, but also need to be careful how we say them. The way you would communicate something to your child should change depending on the danger, like walking out on the street when a car is coming versus having a shoe untied. We face the same problem in talking about doctrinal issues. The problem is that sometimes we take tier three issue and we argue about it with tier one passion. Okay, So we need to heed those warnings. So ladies, it's not our responsibility to be hunting for heresy. Yes, we should be discerning. But we should find our delight not in debates about theology, but we should delight in Jesus and his word. We should delight in the truth of the gospel. We don't trust in our ability to argue fine points of theology, but we trust in Jesus. If we have trusted in Jesus for salvation, but don't yet have all of our theology figured out correctly, where do we stand? Are we still saved? Okay. This is where assurance of salvation comes in. Your salvation doesn't hinge on you perfectly articulating all the correct doctrine. In fact, Paul said it this way to Titus, and this is chapter three of Titus. He said, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We base our assurance of salvation on our relationship with Jesus and God's work on our behalf, His mercy. And my second point of application here is that we can trust our elders to stand on our behalf and fight, like Paul did for the church. Paul was acting here as a loving shepherd and pastor. He was loving the church by not yielding to false brothers. He was fighting on behalf of the flock. That is like us and our elders. He later wrote to Titus about the qualifications for elders. He wrote, we must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a role of an elder, to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so he continues in Titus 2 verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So this is one of the ways our elders and our under shepherds care for our flock here at the North Campus. And so I'm gonna challenge you, would you pray for our elders? Would you encourage them, especially in this season of seeking God's leading? Have you ever considered writing a note of encouragement to them, knowing that sometimes all they hear are the discouraging negative things? So I encourage you, be a blessing, be a joy to our leaders. Now, before we tackle what is the climax, we're gonna jump over climax and we're gonna look at the resolution and the new setting. So what is the resolution? What verses did you put down for that, the resolution? Anyone want to guess? I'm hearing some different answers. Seven? Nine, mm-hmm, yeah. Let me read. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me." So here we have confirmation. That is the C word under number four, resolution. Confirmation. And we see four verbs here. They added nothing. They saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles and that God was at work. And this this phrase here, had been entrusted, this is what's called divine passive. Do you remember Pastor Jason talking about this in his sermon on the resurrection? Mark says the veil had been torn, the stone had been rolled away. Do you remember? Implying that who did it? God did it. Okay, so the same thing is used here in this passage. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel. Who entrusted him? God did, okay, divine passive. Um, The next verb is they perceived. They perceived the grace that was given to Paul. Again, given by God. And they gave the right hand of fellowship. So they added, they saw, they perceived, they gave. They stood with Paul and they blessed and they approved his ministry. And so the implication is that these false teachers, troublemakers, do not represent Jerusalem truly. Paul and Jerusalem are united. There's no contradiction between Paul and Jerusalem. And so Paul is very clear that there is one gospel and one God who is working powerfully through Paul and through Peter. There are two audiences, right? Two missions, uh, Peter to the Jews and Paul to everyone else, the non-Jews. And I think it's really interesting that here we have listed um, Paul, Peter, James, and John. They're all standing together, partners in the ministry. And eventually, they wrote almost 80% of the New Testament. These men, 80%. You think about all the different letters and accounts. And so that brings us to the new setting. What is the new setting? What verses did you put down for our new setting here? The so. Okay, so the new setting we find in verses 9, kind of the last half of of verse 9 and 10, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here we see this is Paul's commission. That's the C word for your blank, commission. So the leaders give their encouragement and their formal endorsement of Paul's ministry. They give the right hand of fellowship, that he's commissioned to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So one true gospel is affirmed, but that gospel is presented in a way that seeks to connect with different groups. The same gospel, same content, and you had a question in your lesson this week about the two ditches to avoid in adapting the gospel message to different cultures. Ditch one is that we fail to adapt at all. We end up raising our traditions or our cultures to a level of non-negotiable. And this creates legalism, you know, to say, well, real Christians do it this way, the way we do it in Moundsview, Minnesota in 2019. We don't contextualize at all. And ditch two is that we over-adapt a gospel message, and this leads to liberalism. You know, we remove the exclusivity of Jesus, we're left with having to save ourselves, being good enough, and then we're doomed to failure. So either ditch we want to avoid. One true gospel message will come across with different nuances depending on the audience's circumstances or their religious and cultural background. So one final qualification in Paul's commission is about the poor, right? Paul was more than happy. He said he was eager to comply with this request. And do you know why? Because Jesus himself became poor for us. This was another demonstration of the unity of Jews and Gentiles in, uh, in Christ. And a little bit of historical background. The Jews that lived in Jerusalem were very poor. So when the famine came, they were very destitute. They were in great need. There was a lot of poverty, but there was relative wealth out in the Gentile areas. And so Paul's trip to Jerusalem, you know, we think, is probably what was referenced in Acts 11, where he was bringing famine relief to the church. And Paul's concern for the poor is seen in some other passages. In Romans 15, Paul writes this. He said, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, the Jews' spiritual blessings, they, the Gentiles, ought also to be of service to them the Jews, in material blessings. And Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 8. And if you want to know more about this, I would encourage you to read chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. It's just beautiful, but just let me give you a snippet. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he he started, he should also complete among you this act of grace. That's what Paul is calling this, an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace. Paul goes on, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet For your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Paul was eager to remember the poor as he was eager to be like Jesus. So we've seen the setting, which is the continuation of the story. The conflict, which was the confrontation. We've seen the resolution of the story, the confirmation of true gospel unity. And we've seen the new setting that commission to ministry. And now we're gonna go back to number three, the climax. The climax here is correct doctrine. The gospel truth is preserved. There is one true gospel. They added nothing to Christ alone. Verse five says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So we should be rejoicing to the length that Paul went to preserve the truth of the gospel for us. The truth that Jesus alone saves, the truth that the cross is sufficient, that we have freedom in Christ, that there are no other requirements. There is no need to perform any other work. If we turn to anything we perform, we destroy the gospel, because Jesus plus anything is nothing. In verse six, says, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul's gospel is not deficient. It is true. The mother church gave their stamp of approval, and it was preserved for the Galatians. It was preserved for us and one note here paul's note for those who seem to be influential refers to the leaders there in the jerusalem church the pillars and although paul respected their authority he knew that god does not make distinctions based on rank or reputation or position it's wonderful news that god doesn't show partiality he is not impressed by our credentials or our reputations paul is demonstrating again that his ministry is not motivated by people-pleasing. He respects the authority of the leaders, but even if they did not agree with him, he is so committed to the truth of the gospel that he would not alter his message. So I hope that this exercise that we had of going through a plot arc has been helpful. I hope that this will help you get to the point in your study where you can find an emphasis or the main point in a narrative, and you could find the main point of what Paul is trying to get across that Paul's gospel is the true gospel. It has been gloriously preserved for you, and there is nothing that can be added to what Jesus has done for us. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for coming, meeting us here. Thank you for opening our eyes. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we go, as we dig into yet get another section of Galatians. Bring us back together again next week, rejoicing in all that you have done for us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.